more specifically, turn to 2 Samuel. That's where we will be for the fall. I love the Old Testament. Moreover, I love the God of the Old Testament, which is the God of the New Testament, the the same God that we worship. Uh, The Old Testament, uh, it's almost like reviewing part of your family's history. It's not just like this Greek mythology. It's like this is the the history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and and that's part of the family that I've been engrafted into, and I want to learn more. And there's there's some crazy stuff in the Old Testament. I mean, there are people who are... Uh, you know, walking by faith, there's victories, there's drama, there's tragedy, uh, there's wisdom, there's leaders who lead with valor, there's, there's leaders who lead with a limp, and yes, there's even people who get body parts cut off, and uh, it just, you know, welcome fifth graders. We're glad you're here. Uh, we, you guys have graduated in, and uh, we are glad you're here. And there is going to be, uh, there's going to be some really perhaps disturbing things that we discover in this latter portion of 2 Samuel. There's so much that is different in their world. I say their world. Uh, by that, I mean the ancient Near East. Uh, but there's, there's so much that is, I mean, make all the adjustments that you want to and put it into focus. And yet you might even anticipate that I would say this, yet nothing has changed. <laughs> uh, People are people and God is God. The nature of God and his grace and wisdom and truth and perfection has remained the same. And, and people, by and large, have also remained the same. We are both a people that are creative and corrupt. Uh, humanity is still a bunch of people uh, who are hungry for good things. And we do have an appetite for destruction. Doug, that was a, a, a Guns N' Roses reference for you, buddy. We're a people who are both compassionate and we're cruel. We're a people who are still deceiving. We still live in an era and time where leaders, yes, even leaders, are manipulative and countries are still at war. That's the same that we read here. We've spent over 30 sermons walking through uh, the life of Israel, King Saul, then King David, and so I want to do just a little bit of review. I think it's pretty interesting because we, we started uh, a few years back in the fall with uh, 1 Samuel, then the, the latter part. Last fall, we were in 2 Samuel unpacking uh, David's life, the struggles of God's people. We call that the nation of Israel, the Hebrew people, the descendants of Abraham, the people of promise. With King David that came into focus Uh, King David isn't always a king, uh, but he is a heroic, faithful, beautiful king, but like and and the greatest king over all of Israel, we're told. And yet we're right on the cusp of some tragedies. We've already seen some tragedies. We're going to see more in his life. But just to review, David was, in fact, a young boy uh, who was skilled as a shepherd, as a musician, uh, and then later a, a warrior as well. As a teenager, he was anointed by the prophet Samuel, thus the name of the book that we're looking into here in the Old Testament. And then he is anointed to be the future king of Israel, although the present king that everybody wanted or thought they wanted, King Saul, in his corrupt ways, uh, continues on. David exists in the backdrop. He becomes a little bit of what you might call a, a folk hero, uh, almost like, a, you know, a uh, you know, kind of a Robin Hood of his day because he is doing uh, great things on behalf of the people. He kills the wicked Philistine, uh, Goliath, as we know. In his 20s, he marries King Saul's daughter. Talk about some tense, difficult uh, in-law relationships. 
<laughs> David has got it really bad because he is loved and adored by the people. And more and more, he is hated with great jealous contempt by King Saul. And we unpack the different ways that David had to live as a refugee at many times in exile, even outside the nation of Israel to try to, to survive. And he has his mighty men. He does great things. And Saul, uh, the king, is excited. And at other times, he feels threatened. And it's back and forth. But David honors the office. He honors the office that God has placed upon Saul as king. When Saul does die, uh, following his death, uh, he does become the king over his tribe, which is Judah. Seven years later, David becomes the king over all of Israel. And uh, at this point in the story, which we pick up here, uh, and he's, he, he does some great things. And there's rem- remarkable conquest and, and peace for the people of God because of the ways that David prospers. Every chapter just about you see these little insights where the Spirit of God was on David. And then this happened. And this happened. This particular chapter, we don't see that as much. And what we're actually going to see is we're on the cusp of some, some pretty difficult uh, tragedy and, and sad things. Regularly, we see these foes that come in the face of King David. He's enjoyed a lot of victory, peace, and prosperity. But, but now there's some, there's some challenges Later, uh, just to review, right before this in chapter 9, because we're in chapter 10, and I think you can find it on page 261. I forgot to mention that in the Pew Bible, the Black Bible. You'll want it open. What we find just prior in chapter 9 is King David is now showing kindness to uh, the grandson of King Saul, his father, Jonathan, David's dear friend, uh, who was to be, you know, in some ways heir to the throne, giving it to David. David's, you know... Dear friend, his son, Mephibosheth, is a disabled uh, young man. Uh, and he is showing kindness to Mephibosheth. He's saying, listen, I'm the new leader, but you are part of my house. And he shows a, what the word there is, hesed, a covenant loyalty. He shows kindness and it's met with loyalty as well. It's met with, uh, with great gratitude. But then that's going to be contrasted. Uh, and that's where there's a turning point, And that's where we're going to be this fall beginning here in chapter 10. So uh, please stand again, if you would, in deference to God's word. Because we're going to see what's contrasted, what is, so to speak, juxtaposed. We'll read this entire chapter. Follow with me. Hear this. This is the word of God. After this, the king of the Ammonites died, and Hanan, his son, reigned in his place. And David said, I will deal loyally with Hanan, the son of Nahash, and his, with his father, as his father dealt loyally with me. So David sent by his servants to console him concerning his father. And David's servants came into the land of the Ammonites. But the princes of the Ammonites said to Hanan, their Lord, do you think because David has sent comforters to you that he is honoring your father? Has not David sent his servants to you to search the city and spy it out and to overthrow it? So Hanan took David's servants shaved off half the beard of each of them, cut off their garments in the middle at their hips. Yep, you get the picture. And sent them away. And then we read verse five, when it was told to David, he sent to meet them for the men were regularly, were greatly ashamed. And the king said, that is David, remain in Jericho until your beards have grown and then return. When the Ammonites, verse six, saw that they had become a stench to David, the Ammonites sent and hired Syrians of Beth Rehoboth and the Syrians of Zobah, 20,000 foot soldiers and the, kings, and the king of Machai with 1,000 men and the men of Tob, 12,000 men. 
And when David heard of it, he sent Joab and all the host of the mighty men. And the Ammonites came out and drew up to battle an array in the entrance of the gate. And the Syrians of Zobah and of Rehoboth and the men of Tob and uh, Machai were by themselves in the open country. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him, both in front and in the rear, he chose some of the best men of Israel and arrayed them against the Syrians. The rest of his men he put in charge of Abishai, his brother. And he arrayed them against the Ammonites. And he said, if the Syrians are too strong for me, then you shall help me. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come and help you. Be of good courage and let, and let us be courageous for our people, for the cities of our God. And may the Lord do what seems good to him. So Joab and the people who were with him drew near to battle against the Syrians, and they fled before him. And when the Ammonites saw that the Syrians fled, they likewise fled before Abishai and entered the city. Then Joab returned from fighting against the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. But when the Syrians saw they had been defeated by Israel, they gathered themselves together. And Hadazir sent and brought out the Syrians who were beyond the Euphrates, and they came to Helam and Shobach, and the commander of the army of Hadazir, and, they, and as their head. And when it was told to David, he gathered all Israel together and crossed the Jordan and came to Helam. The Syrians arrayed themselves against David and fought with him. And the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed of the, of the Syrians the men of 700 chariots and 40,000 horsemen wounded. Shobach, the commander of their army, so that he did, so that he did die there. Verse 19. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadazer, saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace. They made peace with Israel and became subject to them. So the Syrians were afraid to save the Ammonites anymore. This is God's word. Maybe seated, but we definitely need God's help. <clears throat> Lord, there are many details and uh, names, things that are difficult for us to put our, our minds around. Would you clear our minds and open our hearts uh, we are your children, and we want the, uh, your kingdom to come and be formed in us, through us, that we might see the king, be worshipers of the king, be better disciples of the king, Jesus, our hope. Amen. Here's a question. Uh, I guarantee you've asked it. It's, here's the question, not profound. Why can't we all just get along? For crying out loud. Why can't we all? You, you might say that amongst your team this fall, students. You might say this with your family at a reunion. You might say this uh, in your workplace. It's easy to say that when you look at the news. Where on earth can people go? Where, where could people go? And everyone in America, as much as we're so sadly to say, polarized and, uh, and, you know, and, 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 uh, and so divided. We're so divided, it seems, at times. Where could we go to have just a bit of, just a moment of unity? I think it would be over a cheeseburger at a Jimmy Buffett concert. Can I get an amen? Yeah, that would be the case. That's not, there's no longer hope for that, right? Okay, obviously, this, is, uh, this has been another week where we've lost an art, another artist and celebrity. I was reading Tim Rice, who's a journalist. He put it well. Jimmy Buffett dying on Labor Day weekend is like Adams and Jefferson dying on the 4th of July. It's fitting, almost providential. That was an interesting word. Almost providential that the man who personified island living would sail off into the sunset for the last time as summer gave way to fall. 
For Buffett, the beach was more than a beach. He closes his article. It was a tropical river, Jordan, a relief from our earthly toil. His music is a balm for all seasons, a soundtrack that keeps us afloat as we trudge along, not just throughout the work week, but every day of our lives. The reward he promises isn't just any cheeseburger. Thank you very much. It's a cheeseburger in paradise. When and where can people be united this side of that paradise? Is it present? Is it in the past, the deep, deep past? No. Is it in the near future? Uh, Not unless God's coming back to, to bring that final day, the new heavens and the new earth. We're entering into a time, even in this passage, you you probably saw it. There's all different forms of division taking place. And it's going to be that way for the life of David, his own family. I mean, that's painful to even contemplate. The people of God at times are going to be divided. There's obviously division between the people of Israel, the the people of promise, and the Gentiles who are, are, are fighting against them. These are painful realities, but there are not only glimpses, but actual pictures of hope. You know, a good storyteller, a good storyteller who's trying to draw us in and 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 bringing things into focus has these subtle ways, don't they? If someone is good at literature and at writing, they, they weave in foreshadowing ahead of time. We know how that works. It was a dark, gloomy day as the clouds rolled in and the storm set in. Roger took his axe who he had been cutting wood with and threw it in the back of his truck and drove off. Dude, that axe is coming back into the story at some point. I know it. And the the, the dark clouds rolling in. What's happening here? You know it's going to come back. Division is part of the foreshadowing. It's actually the common thread in this one chapter. Not too terribly significant of a chapter, it seems, at first glance. And even after carefully studying this week, it seemed that way still to me. There's only this one mention from Joab, of all people, about God. Here's the other theme I see that is woven through this chapter in particular. And it's that of seeing. The verb seeing. They saw this. They saw this. They saw that. He sees this. So that's how I want to divide it up. As you look at the order of service, there's three headings. First is what David sought and saw. The second is what Joab saw. And then lastly, what do the enemies see as well? What did David seek? What did David see? Well, David sees an opportunity, simply put. He sees an opportunity and he seizes an opportunity to show kindness. Someone is grieving. Uh, he, he wants to, uh, to extend uh, compassion to this nation. Uh, we know that he wants to show, look at verse 2. It says, I will deal with him uh, loyally. Uh, I will deal loyally with Hanan, this, this prince of a fallen uh, enemy king that he had been friendly with, has fallen. And so he's like, listen, I want to go and show him some of this. The word there, loyalty, is hesed, which is covenant Faithfulness. So at some point along the way, he had made a covenant with this father who had died. Now his son is here. And you know how we sometimes treat covenants, whether it's the covenant of marriage or a covenant that we make when we join a local church like the Langs this morning. Uh, we, we know that we enter into promises. We would like to have the freedom without the commitments. 
Um, you know, hey, you know, we, met, we, we said that a long time ago. That's not as relevant today. And times change, people change. And so we'll just, we'll just forget about that or conveniently for, you know, not recall some of the details of that. And we'll just go our own way. But not with David. David is trying to be true to both his word and the character of God to show kindness, to show uh, that he uh, is compassionate towards uh, this man. He sends these emissaries. He sends this entourage. It's the same thing he did in the previous chapter with Mephibosheth, like I said. A grieving prince whose father had died. And now we see another grieving prince who's become king. Same thing. But Hanan treats David like our political parties treat each other. With suspicion. Uh, He listens to his advisors. He chooses the party line. And he says, fine. And he attacks. These, these, they're clearly the garments they're even wearing are to communicate a formal emissary. They're, this is an envoy that's brought, with, not with the express purpose to engage in battle, but to show and to bring comfort to this grieving nation and their new king. Hanan decides, well, we're going to humiliate them. And boy, do they ever. They, 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 uh, they cut off half their beards, which was a significant sign. Uh, you know, that it would be, only slaves would be the type of people that would have had their beards cut off. They decided to just take off half their beard. And it's demasculating. It's obviously trying to, to signify uh, something. And then it's even more demeaning when they, when, they, when they decide to just rip off their clothes. And I don't know if that was the front side and the back side, but this is not a pretty scene. And they're sent off. They're sent back to uh, just cross the line into to Jericho. And, King David finds out about this and he says, you, you know, he understands the nature of that shame and he, he doesn't want it to be compounded. So he doesn't say go back to Jerusalem. He says, no, 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 just go across the border and then stay there until your, what does it say in the text? Your beards grow back. This was an act of sedition, treachery, and they know it. They know and they see, as the King James says in verse six, that they stank to King David. They, they, they know that they have made for themselves a sharp enemy. They had assumed that he was. They were wrong. But now they're right. So let's move on down. Skip down to verse 9. Because then we see Joab. He's a familiar character to those uh, who've read back over, uh, who, who know some of the history already. He was the, the commander of the, you know, kind of the field operations officer over the, Israel, the Israelite army. Very, at times, corrupt figure. No doubt about it. And he will be. Uh, he, he's not turned a corner in any miraculous way, but he is taking steps of faith here. We knew, he knew, verse 10, that the division uh, could be a good thing. And that they could work through that. And he grabs Abishai, as we read. And then they can go and, and handle, uh, you know, this, uh, you know this, this group of of mercenaries, it's not just the Ammonites. Now it's the Am- Ammonites and the, the Syrians and others that are coming in battle together against them. But I'm glad that God can and does work through and even around divisions and disappointments. God can work. We've heard the old proverb: God can use crooked sticks to draw straight lines. Most of the time, a crooked stick draws a crooked line. But with God, he can take crooked sticks and draw a straight line. And that's where we find Joab, like I said, a a mixed character at best. Uh, 
operating in his own self-interest a lot of the time. But right now, if we look at the text carefully, we see that he's actually operating and we have no problem affirming his faith. What did he see? Look at the text, verse 9. When Joab saw that the battle was set against him in front of him and in the rear, he chose some of the best men. Part of the strategy. But where's his hope? Where's your hope? Divided, disappointed in life? Is it in your quick wit, your charming words, your money, your relationships? Well, I, I, I would beg that we, we ought to, I, and, and that's tempting for me, but I, I would say it would be wise of us to follow what we see in the outlook and the perspective of what Joab saw. Let's look at verse 12. Be of good courage, he says to the men. You go your way. We'll help each other out best we can. Be of good courage, though, verse 12, and let, let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God. And may the Lord, Yahweh, do what seems good to him. Only mention of God. In many ways, it is a prayer, it is a perspective like unto Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. That's the, the dynamic trio that finds themselves in the book of Daniel. Where? Whew. It's hot, uh, you know, today. Uh, this is a hotness. This is a, this is a threat that is way beyond what we could imagine. And what do Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say concerning God's will? Well, in Daniel 3, you can read it for yourself. They say to King Nebuchadnezzar, Hey, look, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But, but, verse 18, Daniel 3, you can read it yourself. But even if he does not, if God does not do that, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Could you say it? Disappointments, divisions, uh, deep-seated uncertainties about your future and mine. Could you say, I do believe in the sovereign goodness of God? Regardless of what comes out. I may be tempted to, to doubt that, but my story, the consistency of that story will be, God, you are good. Not, 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 not the way that I would have scripted it. I think that's probably what Joab would say. King David would say it too. Not the way we would script it. Perhaps God wants us to wait and even suffer defeat to keep us humble. I don't know. That's what Joab saw. He, he, he saw that God was in control and he saw that he had, uh, you know, a, 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 an, without God's help, an insurmountable battle in front of him. David, at least initially, saw the battle going on uh, and saw the, saw the opportunity to show compassion, saw the battle, but he stayed back. Sent Joab. This is what Joab sees. They win the victory. I, we just read it. We know what happens there uh, ultimately. But what did the enemies see? This is another, another vantage point because that, that's where the word comes in again. Go back with me to verse 6. When the Ammonites saw that they had become a stench, that they stank to David. Other times they see, they realize. The Syrians, verse 15, the Syrians saw that they had been defeated. 
They saw the power of the living God. They had uh, the ability to appreciate uh, in their defeat. It was so, I mean, it was, it was in the bag, right? It, 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 should have been a, it should have been a done deal last Saturday that Clemson would have beat Duke in football. And none of you are shaking your heads, right? You, you know, I, I, I know, and I know where I live. Uh, college football, maybe not as big a deal. Uh, you, you just see everything is stacked. Everything is set. It's, it's, it is so predictable. And yet they don't win. They know, they realize, at least in part, that there is power with the God of the people of Israel. Does that mean that you have to win in life to, to prove the goodness of God to people who doubt you? No. You, you could bear the fruit of patience and long-suffering and humility, even in your defeats, and that's the way that you would show that God is good. Your God, our God, is good. But they saw the power very clearly. And like I said, they, they know they're defeated. They retreat. The Syrians, they also see their mistakes. What did they see? Verse 19. And when all the kings who were servants of Hadezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with the people of God. The Syrians see their mistakes. The enemies then, uh, the enemies now, sometimes in, in due time and sometimes not, see the power of God. Why is it important where your allegiance lies? There's a lot of answers to that question. It would probably have been fitting for us to do an Old Testament reading. I like whenever we're preaching in one book that we, we use the other to do our, our call to confession and reading of Scripture. But an Old Testament reading this morning could have been Psalm 2. And I want to ask you to turn there uh, to try to see and bring into focus a little bit of why it's so important where our allegiance resides. Psalm 2. Again, it's so interesting how the, the scriptures just anticipate, uh, you know, humanity's ways, the world's ways. Why do the nations, Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel. What? Together. That, that's here. We're, we're talking about it. The, the Ammonites, the Syrians. Here we are. And the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart, cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in his derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Well, that speaks of God's sovereignty, doesn't it? It speaks of God's strategy. Doesn't matter how you line it up. Doesn't matter if you get us divided. Doesn't matter if you unite yourself against us as divided. You will ultimately lose against the true and living God. There may be battles where God's people loses, but God does not. And here, it's not just about this, the sovereignty and the strategy it's actually a messianic psalm that is pointing to the great strategy, the great savior, and the superior king way beyond King David. Verse 7 of Psalm 2, let's continue. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. This is speaking of a king, but it's speaking of a greater son than the son of King David. And we know that for a number of reasons. And throughout the ages, Christendom has cherished this as a messianic psalm pointing to the person and work of Jesus. But before we get there, and this is how I'm going to close, let's not miss David. What did David not see that we see? Especially in the context. King David here was not at war. He sent the emissaries. He knows there's going to be war. He lets them grow their beards back out. Sends them with Joab to to battle. And he's not there. Things don't look too good. He re-enters, engages in battle. And they have victory. And then he retreats again. This is important. Let's go back to 2 Samuel. Turn back over to that page. Because what we're on the cusp of is one of the most familiar of all of David's stories. And so this chapter is significant in how it, it, it sets us up to understand what happened with King David. Because with David, right after all of this happens, right? The Ammonites are no more. They, 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 they've, they've conquered. What does chapter 11 verse 1 say? In the spring of the year... The time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Uh No big deal. Oh, except verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw on another rooftop a woman bathing. This is not... Next week we cover this chapter. That's not the beginning of the unraveling. It's not the beginning of... David, for one reason or another, was confident, was complacent, was comfortable with the prosperity and, and all that was going on. And he decided unlike the rest of the kings to go to war, he decided to stay home. And it proves to be a devastating travesty of compromise. And we'll consider that next week. But back to the foreshadowing. Not only the division and the moral tragedy that is beginning to to formulate and come into focus somewhat, even they and we in, in small ways make, obviously, there's a lesson to be learned. We could say that, too, about making small decisions that end in great compromise that hurt us. But the hope here isn't in strategy. This will be the case every week. You'll hear me say it probably again and again. There is King David, but there is a greater son of King David who is Messiah, King Jesus, And it was prophesied in Isaiah 50 verse 6 that he himself would have his beard torn and his garments 
that Jesus, our Savior and our King, it's told of us in John 19 that he would be stripped of his clothes. That he would suffer all form of humiliation, not for the sake of defeat, but for the very purpose of victory over his and our enemies. And our greatest enemy uh, isn't uh, a political foe. It's, it, it's, not, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not that other guy at work or that neighbor or that in-law. <laughs> our greatest foe is sin and the father of lies. And Jesus, don't you see, even in division, God has this remarkable way. Even next, you know, when we come to the Lord's table and we say, this, his body is broken for you. It's so that we could come and have our brokenness healed. It's so that we would come and surrender to Jesus and say, it's, it is a mess. And only you and having all of these things done unto you can we experience hope and unity. Praise be to God. Praise be to God. Jesus was broken that he could take our brokenness, even our divided hearts. Talk about division. Why can't we all just get along? I don't know about you. There's times I don't even have unity in my own heart and mind. And there is no hope. Except Christ to bring that up. If you don't know him today, please, by faith, surrender. I would love to talk to you about how you can experience the lordship and the redemption King Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father, please glorify yourself by, by granting us humble hearts to walk by faith and walk into new obedience. Help us to remember your covenant, your faithfulness, or your loyalty. Forgive us for our pride and our forgetfulness tied to that pride. Lord, thank you for your for the peace that we had been tracing and seeing witness through King David and Israel. But thank you for making a new Israel and promising to bring us final rest and peace someday through Jesus. Forgive us, Lord, for not taking you at your word, for doubting your goodness, your kindness. Forgive us, Lord, at the times, I know it in my own heart, this very weak, just the restlessness and anxiousness, anger even about tomorrow. It's only because of our, our unbelief. Thank you for being so committed to your covenant loving kindness. Thank you that promises were filled and fulfilled in Jesus. Teach us those promises. Lord, you know, people in our midst and our church family that we love and they're struggling, they're struggling with work, with health, with contentment, with their marriage, with parenting, with just weariness in their calling. Lord, grant mercy. Lord, grant mercy to our children, to students, to teachers, administrators, educators, Lord. This time of year, Lord, be with those who are trying to pick up the pieces from what some of us have read about in a devastating earthquake and those who may even be impacted because of hurricanes. Lord, have mercy. I guess what I'm trying to say is, Lord, would you please come back? That would be beautiful and good that you would make all things right and all things new. We pray all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who taught his disciples to pray, saying together, our Father who art in heaven, Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this 